So, all right. <clears throat> so, um, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, verses, uh, today we're going to look at verses 16 through 23. Colossians two sixteen through 23. <clears throat> and... Um, So after revealing the deceptiveness of the false teachings in verses 8 through 15, I think Owen went through those and talked about them, and uh, he did a good job going through it. And um, So anyways, Paul shifts here his attention to the, to the practices promoted by those who are spreading such false teachings. Um, this section of 16 through 23 is divided into three subsections, okay, each of which begins with a critique of a set of practices. The first set is dietary and holiday practices, if you see in 16 and 17. Then you see aesthetic, which is a, uh, in other words, the strict self-denial and visions. And then the last section, you'll see legalistic rules and regulations. Um, these practices were done to try and gain favor with God and or to experience um, another level of worship uh, with God. Now, these things would make you look spiritual to others, right? If I saw you doing these things, I'd be like, wow, that's a spiritual person, right? Look at what they're doing. And we can get caught in that trap. It's not about the outward. It's about the inward. And we'll take a look at that here today. But uh, G.K. Bill in his uh, commentary says, Believers should not be required to submit to extraordinary practices of bodily discipline and holiday keeping in order to experience, now check this word out, in order to experience the tabernacling presence of God. And we'll talk about that more, tabernacling presence of God, since only faith in Christ is necessary for that, okay? So again, we read that believers should not be required to submit to extraordinary practices of bodily discipline and holiday keeping in order to experience the tabernacling presence of God, since only faith in Christ is necessary for that. Okay, if you understand this statement, then you'll understand the section of text very clearly, but if not, I'll try to do a good job at explaining it to you. All right, so now, there's a debate <clears throat> on whether this section of passage is probably the most debated section in Colossians, um, but there's a debate on whether this is strictly, is it Jewish or is it pagan, like what's he going after here? Uh, my view is that it's Jewish, but with a pagan influence in there. Because you have the body of Christ coming together. You have both now Jews and Gentiles. We see this in Galatians. Coming together and now forming one people. There is no more Jews and Gentiles uh, um, from uh, you know, a chosen people perspective. When there's no separation, we are now one in Christ. Um, and so kind of like what we see today with our uh, Southern Baptist friends. I'm not sure if you've been keeping up, but I've been kind of keeping up for the last maybe 10 years, 9 years. Um, I was kind of part of that before I came here, and before that I was uh, in more of an independent type churches. But anyways, uh, I mean, we've been watching kind of what's been going on with the Southern Baptists, and uh, you'll see there the, the compromising of the truth. You'll see uh, they've, oh, you know, what it's caused, when they compromise the truth, it's caused them to open up the doors to charismatic, emotional, and experiential teachings. You'll see the, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of being brought into the church. 
um, you'll see the LGBTQ plus um, um, groups coming in and being welcomed as uh, uh, a normal uh, people, or, or people is fine, but the issue is the sin, right? The sin is not called out. You know, you hate the sin, but love the person, right? We're all sinners. And then also you'll see the critical race theory that is coming in to the church as well. I see it in my workplace today, you know, about uh, uh, diversity and inclusion and all these things. Then also you see feminism that has come into this church as well. And all this has happened like it has unfolded itself within the last few months in the Southern Baptist world. You can go look on the internet and see it. So we will approach this text with a Jewish slant and a pagan influence. Um, As you know, since the birth of the church in Acts 2, there's always been some type of false teaching, okay? Some type of false doctrine, um, attacks on the gospel, uh, or the challenging, this is the most key thing here, or the challenging of the authority of Scripture, okay? If we challenge the authority of Scripture and you say that God does not, what he says is not what he says, then anything goes. The Bible is now irrelevant, but the, that's the debate between evolution and creation. It doesn't matter if a rock hit it or what. The point is is that God says he created it in six days and rested on the seventh. Either you believe in the authority of Scripture or you don't, and that's it. It's plain and simple. Okay, so you see that, the attack on the authority of the Scripture and the gospel. The attempt to eliminate the bride of Christ at a universal level will fail. It will never happen. Christ says, I will build my church. Okay, it will never fail. But as churches trade in, the truth for numbers, right? When numbers become more important than preaching the truth. Um, when, when the worship players uh, are, are traded out for plays or for um, um, you know, interactive uh, worship. Um, you know, I've been, my wife and, and kids were showing, or my wife was showing me some, some uh, worship uh, times at one of the churches one of my friends goes to. And I'm like, man, that's, it's chaos. It's not worship, Right? And so anyways, and when preaching with feel-good pep talks is replaced, or when preaching is replaced with feel-good pep talks, then that also will cause problems, right? The local church will eventually trade in the bride for something foreign, okay? It is no longer the bride. The bride has been transformed and traded in for a newer model, right? They no longer want the bride of Christ. They have created an image unto themselves, and now they worship it in church, don't even realize it. They think that they're doing God a favor by drawing all these peoples because they evaluate themselves on numbers and how many amens they get um, and uh, what it looks like and what it makes me feel like. Um, but one day the Lord will return and they will be in wonder and why they're still here on earth. Can you imagine that? You're out there playing church and all of a sudden Christ comes and you're still here. That's pretty scary. Now, this final section of chapter 2 serves both as the conclusion of the section and the, uh, of this section, right? We're ending chapter 2, and, and, but it's also an introduction for chapter 3, verses 1 through chapter 4, verse 1. When we get to verse 20, we'll discuss it a little bit more in detail. Uh, we'll be splitting this section up in two parts. I'm not sure where I'll stop yet. Maybe stop at the end of 16, 17, or maybe 19. Um, have some... Um, things I want to talk about and go slow a little bit. Now, 
So just to recap of kind of what we've gone through here in Colossians, if you look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through chapter 2, verses 5, the goal here was that the believers are to be complete in Christ. You've heard Owen the last few weeks uh, pounding that, in Christ, in Christ. You remember him saying that, right? This is very, very important here in this section. And we'll see why in a minute when we go back and talk about the tabernacling. That's very, very important. Okay, so the goal here was that believers are to be complete in Christ, which is achieved by them not being deluded by false teachings, okay? If you are complete in Christ, you won't be uh, deceptive, okay? The main point, if we look at the next section of text of uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, is that believers should live or walk only on the basis of faith. Remember we talked about at the beginning of Colossians that to walk in Christ is a skillful walk, like you're building a building, an engineered building. It's not just to live and you know go on everyday life, but it's to walk in a skillful way, okay? Only on the basis of faith in Christ and not by any other belief, okay? We see that in chapter two, verses six through nine. Now, the reason for living only on the basis of Christ is that he came in the fullness of deity. If you go to verse 9, look at this, a very, very important passage. If we look at verse 9, is that Christ came in the fullness of deity in the flesh of God's, as God's temple, okay? And we're going to come back to that in a minute, so don't put that, you know, uh, save a spot, highlight it, but Colossians 2, 8, uh, 2 9, and 10 are very, very key um, in this section, so in doing so, he thereby redeemed people by his death and resurrection. We see that in verses 10 through 14, which accomplished victory over spiritual enemies that we see in verse 15, okay? So now we're up to this moment, okay? The emphasis on living only by faith in Christ is so that we can have confidence that we will not fall into the warnings given to us in verses 4 and 8. Verses 4 says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument, okay? And then verse 8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ, okay? So that's a quick introduction, a recap of kind of what we've gone through. Now let's go ahead and read the text. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. And I'll be reading out of the ESV this morning. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up with reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If the Christ, I mean, if with Christ you died to the elements uh to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human 
precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All right, let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, I pray that you um, be with me, Lord, as I evaluate your scripture and that we teach the flock, Lord. I pray that uh, they too challenge anything that I say, Lord, and I pray that you give us all wisdom and growth today. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, so verse 16. Therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. We're going to be here a little bit in this verse and uh, break it up a little bit and uh, talk about just the details of each section. So I might bog you down a little bit, but it's all really, really important to understand. All right. So the therefore here refers back to the main point of this section of verses, uh, a section of verses which is chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Okay. This is the base for this section. At the beginning of 6, you'll see that there's a therefore, okay? And uh, this section, or that section teaches that Christian living should be centered only on the work of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. The Colossians had died to all efforts uh, to please God by the flesh, okay? That was the old way. The Colossians are no longer trying to please God by the flesh or their gods by the flesh, okay? They had not only died, but also had been buried with Christ and had risen with Christ to a new kind of life. And in chapter 3, we'll see the new man. Okay, we'll see the new life. Therefore, they should be done forever. So they are to be disconnected with the Judaizers and the Gnostics and the pagans and all those things who were trying to draw them back to the very things to which the Colossians had died to. These teachers here are trying to take them back and pull them back to their old ways, okay? They had died to their old ways. Now these false teachers are trying to resurrect the old rules they once were bound to, okay? They were bound to laws and rules, man-made things, but now they are bound to Christ and they're trying to take that away. Now, this therefore, if we look at this therefore here, it's a sub-point of the therefore in verse six, okay? So you have verse six, therefore, and then you have a sub-point therefore explaining uh, uh, what was taught in verses um, um, 6 through 15. And then now you'll see in 3.1 there is another therefore which is separate from this therefore, okay? It is therefore an in-between two therefores, fair? <laughs> so you have a therefore verse 6, therefore here, and then another therefore that relates back to verse 6. This is just a sub therefore to explain this way, not this way, fair? Okay, so... It is a therefore between two therefores. I never thought I'd experience this until today. So, All right. So, no one, okay? So, therefore, no one, okay? The no one here is uh, very interesting because Paul is very direct when he speaks, right? We see that with Paul, and, you know, we love to associate with Paul because he's firm, but I think uh, most of the times we find ourselves like Peter, right? You know, we want to be firm like Paul, but end up cowarding down like Peter sometimes. But anyways, here Paul, he uses the word no one or anyone. Okay, here he's talking about false, te- he's, uh, talking about the false teachers, okay? 
um, or those adding these teachings to their own faith. Maybe they're weak Christians, they don't know any better, they're still trying to grow, but they don't know. So what he's done is he increased the bar for the young believers and brought it up kind of to them. It's kind of getting chewed out a little bit. But to the false teachers, he slightly watered it down and brought it down to make them equal with each other. So he says, therefore, no one, I don't care if you're a false teacher or a young believer, no one <clears throat> um, is to judge you in food or drink. Okay, so he's talking about them. This is a shotgun approach, okay, rather than being specific like we're used to with Paul. Okay, he just shoots out and, and gets everybody. So he says, therefore, no one is to judge you in food or drink. All right, let's look at judge you, okay? So before we go into the context, I want to, to stop or slow down really quick and talk about judging. Okay, so is judging allowed in the Bible? Okay, does God forbid it? Okay, we always hear people tell us, you can't judge me. Have you ever been told that? I've been told that. You can't judge me. And you're like, hmm, okay. And then so what happens typically we kind of cower down and don't say anything, right? We're like, well, are they right? Are they wrong? You know? <clears throat> so typically they'll cower down, be silent. Okay, so the question is, well, can we judge? If we look at Matthew, they'll typically quote Matthew 7, 1. It says, do not judge, so that way you will not be judged. Okay? So, yep, there it is. Okay, we can't judge. We're done. Okay, all right, next verse. No, just kidding. So, but if we continue to read just the next verse in Matthew 7, 2, it says, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. So we can judge, okay? But remember that you will be held to the same standard, okay? It's okay. This isn't nothing for us to shy away. If we're confident in Christ and confident in the word that we know, then we can approach judgment and be wise and loving when we do it. Now, there's another passage that most don't know about or ever quote or these people specifically, right? They won't quote this, but it's key to helping us understand when we can judge. Let's go to John chapter 7, okay? Remember, Matthew 7, John 7. That's how I remember this. Matthew 7, then John 7. John 7, 24. <clears throat> it says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. Man, okay, he's telling the Pharisees. The Jews here would judge according to outward appearances and not according to the inward reality, okay? Because of that, it was not a righteous judgment, okay? It was always outward for the Jews, okay? Everything they did was an outward um, qualification, an outward verification. They didn't care what the heart looked like because it would expose them. So remember, human nature always tends to judge on what we can see rather than the reality. My wife and I just went through this with uh, bearing uh, my mother-in-law. You know, there were some assumptions made about us because of what they saw. But when we went back and talked to them, made things right, they finally saw that, oh, we were wrong and we were not righteously judging, okay? So again, it's interesting, okay? So a righteous judgment, it's okay to judge, okay? And if somebody calls you out, make sure you're good. And God says that there is a righteous judgment, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. Do not be afraid of it. In fact, God calls us to judge people by their fruits, you know, things like that, okay? I can go into a whole sermon just on that itself, but we're not going to do that today. <clears throat> okay, 
So here's a great truth, okay? Here's what he's trying to say here in Colossians is that one of the reasons Paul tells us no one is to judge us is because we have already been judged, okay? We have been judged. So if we're going to judge them, that's okay because we have already been judged. Now let's go back. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. Let's look at verses 11, 12, and 14. We'll skip 13 just for the sake of time. But verse 11, it says, In whom you were also circumcised. I think Owen went into detail on this. In whom you were also circumcised. Okay, we were cut. Our sins were cut off. Okay, with a circumcision made without hands, but it was made in the, renew, in the removal of the body of the flesh, in the circumcision of Christ. Our sins were cut off through the circumcision of Christ, okay, <clears throat> having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And then verse 14, it says, having canceled out the certificate of debt, okay, the certificate of debt was death, okay, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He also has taken it out of the way, and it says right here, having nailed it to the cross, okay, he has nailed it to the cross. We have been judged and has been paid for. Okay? So there's no reason. You know, here, Paul tells us no one is to judge us. The, the reason why Paul tells us no one is to judge us is because we have already been judged. There's nothing to be judged on. Okay? The fullest judgment that can happen is the judgment through Christ. Okay? And that's what he's saying here. So any judgment that is made about diets, about uh, holidays, right, um, or any other work is nothing compared with the judgment already been made by God in Christ on our behalf, which is God's judgment of our sin through Christ. <clears throat> this now allows us to be in the very presence of God in Christ, okay? So let's look at this verse really quick. Remember the presence of God. We talked about this. I talked about the tabernacling. Let's, let's look at this real quick. Let's look at verses 8, 9, and 10, okay? So verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, okay? According to the elementary principles of the world and not according to Christ. Now, here's, here's what you need to pay attention to. Verse 9 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In him, who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ, okay? In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in him. So in Christ, the fullness of God is indwelt in him. All the attributes, his omnipresence, omnipotence, and uh, what's the other one? Omnipotence, <laughs> all-powerful. All these attributes of Christ, I mean of God, are in Christ. The fullness of God is in Christ, okay? That's huge. I think Wes was like, when he, was, when he taught that, it's hard to fathom that, right? And I agree with Wes, okay? But that's what it says. But here's why it's important. It says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. It dwells in Christ. Now check this out in verse 10. And in him you have been filled. The same fullness that is indwelt in Christ is now indwelt in us. Everything we ever need will always have, or everything we ever need is will be found in Christ, and we have it in us because Christ and his fullness of deity indwells in us. That doesn't mean that we're little gods or that we have the power like God, like you'll see some of these televangelists teach. Okay, that's not what it's saying here. What he's saying here um, is that God 
is tabernacling. He's, it's a dwelling place. The tabernacle is a dwelling place. God is tabernacling. His tabernacling place is in Christ, okay? So God is in Christ and now tabernacles in us because we share the same fullness in Christ. Do you get that? If God is in Christ and Christ is in us, then the fullness of God is indwelt in us, okay? So all the power we need to do anything we need to do, so there's no excuses. Well, I don't know, you know, if I, if I have the, uh, the strength or the wisdom to do this ministry or to do this or to that. No, it's all there. If it's God's will, then it's all there. All the power you need is indwelt in Christ and Christ is in us, okay? Now, so God tabernacles in us through Christ. This might be a foreign idea to some of you. So 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Okay? So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit reside in us, the full Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and all his power resides in us. Okay? That doesn't mean that one day we can just unlock this power and, and do what we want. No, that's not what it's saying. But as we walk our Christian life, God empowers us to, to walk it. Okay? He gives us what we need. Okay? He gives us a sample of what we need every day. Okay? So anyway, so that's so important to understand that. Now, we go back <clears throat> to the verses. Therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink. Now, the matters of food and drink, okay? I'm not sure the positions of some of you here today, but I know there are some different ideas out there of how we should approach food and drink in the Bible. And, you know, you'll see all these, uh, these diets and fasting, these books that are written, but there's a different, and those are okay, okay? They're not, unless they're telling you you need to be doing these to, uh, to be saved, but um, if they're not for health reasons, I'd just be cautious with some of those things. But anyways, it says now, the matters of food and drink, okay? So we now see for the third time in the Bible, people working through disagreements concerning food and drink. We see in Romans chapter 14, we see this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we see this. And now we see it here in Colossians, okay? So this is a hot item. Why? Think about it. We've taken paganistic cultures, Jewish cultures, combined them together, and this was the thing that separated them in the past. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So of course there's going to be bumping of heads, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be debate. You'll see these things, right? You see the same thing when you have a Bible preaching church, then you see a teacher who comes in and begins to teach in Sunday school a different belief on salvation, then all of a sudden you have this clash Right of, of groups of people trying to um, defend the truth in which they both feel they're defending. And then sometimes you will see church splits or you'll see um, you know, people getting their feelings hurt, things like that. But anyways, you'll see this. Okay? So you see two cultures clashing. Okay, now, I told you earlier that we'll look at it from a pagan perspective and also a Jewish perspective. But first, let's look at the pagan side of it. Okay. On the pagan side, the avoidance of food and drink refers to um, abstaining from meat, wine, and strong drink in preparation for the participation in cultic and religious rituals, okay? And some of these, they would sober up or stay sober clean, come into this state, and then they would begin 
the drinking and what they were doing. They were trying to get this ecstasy or trying to get to, to this higher level, right? This, this higher level um, of, of godliness, okay? They're going to another realm. Also, in today's day, to kind of relate to paganism, spiritism also insists on their members to abstain from meat. Uh, the Roman Catholicism, they taught at one point, or some still may, that they were not supposed to eat meat on Friday. Some required abstinence from certain foods during Lent. Okay, I was raised Catholic. Remember that, you know, growing up myself. The Mormons say that a person cannot be a member in good standing if he drinks tea or coffee. The Seventh-day Adventists insist that a person must keep the Sabbath in order to please God. Okay, now, the second half of this verse needs to be read to fully view the Jewish perspective. So it says, no one is to judge you in food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. If we look here, we see the Gentiles, they would mock the Jews, okay? They would mock them as separatists, especially on three items, okay? They would say, they would mock them because they were circumcised, right? And they had special laws about food and drink. That's what made them different from them. And they also had special holy days, like the new moon. Um, the new moon celebration was used to, to greet each new month, and the Sabbath was a weekly festival. So they mocked them, okay? So now you have the Gentiles and Jews again. Here's another theme from cultures that clash. So they're having to work through these items. Now, the question to ask is, what was the law for the Jews or for us, okay? What was the law for? Not what was the law. See, the question, the difference is, what was the law for? Why was the law created? Not what is it, right? And that's the way you got to approach the law. So the law was to make a clear separation from things contaminated by pagan idolatry and especially to show a difference between unclean Gentiles and clean Israelites. We see that in the, Old and New, in the Old Testament. Okay, God's people were to be a holy people and separated. They're supposed to be different, right, than the Gentiles and their pagan religions. Okay, so we're going to do a quick Old Testament run-through just to kind of evaluate this. So hold on tight here, okay? We're going to be in Leviticus for a little bit, so you can hold your spot there. And then we're going to kind of just dash through Leviticus. You're more than welcome to go back. I think Nick's been posting this um, on Facebook. So you can go back and listen and take notes if you want as well. So if we look at Leviticus 11, 1 through 2, we see the laws of the clean and unclean animals set before Israel. Okay, that's important. It's set before Israel, not to the pagans. Okay, in verse 1 here. As Yahweh spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the sons of Israel. Okay? Okay, not the pagans, not the Gentiles, saying, These are the creatures which you may not eat from, all the animals that are on the earth. Okay? So again, he's addressing the Israelites because he's, he wants them to be different. Now, we look at Leviticus 20 now. Go a few more chapters, nine more chapters up. Leviticus 20, 5 and, and 6, we see why he did it, okay? He says, uh, 25, I'm sorry, 25 and 26, not 5 and 6. Leviticus 20, 25 and 26. It says, you are therefore to separate 
between the clean animal and unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean, and you shall not make yourselves detestable, okay, detestable by animal, or by bird, or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy, and I have separated you from the people's to be mine, right? From the, the world of peoples, he's taken a group of people and separated them to be his so that they could represent who Christ is or God is, right? He has a chosen people to represent him. Now, the main purpose of the Old Testament laws was to enable the Israelites to become clean, okay? Now, this is different. So the main purpose of the Old Testament laws was to enable the Israelites to be clean and to be able to enter into God's temple to worship him. So not only was it to be different from the other people, but the main reason God did these things is that when they came to him, he wanted them to be uh, clean. When they came to him in the temple, remember, to tabernacle, the tabernacle, remember, tabernacle with us. So we'll, we'll kind of tie this back into the tabernacle idea here in a minute. The unclean are to be separated from the tabernacle in order to protect the holiness of the tabernacle, okay? So if we look at Numbers 5.3, it says, You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. Okay, he's not talking about the priest. He's talking about just male and female. Leviticus 15.31 Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel, the sons of Israel, separated from their uncleanness, so that they will not die in their uncleanness by making my tabernacle that is among them unclean. Okay, so the reason why he had these, these laws was for them to be able to approach God his way. Okay, all right. Leviticus 12, 14, I mean 12, 4. Then she shall remain in the blood of her cleansing for the thirty. Uh, for 33 days, she shall not touch any holy thing, and she shall not enter the sanctuary into the days of her cleansing are fulfilled. He's talking about a lady who is on her time, uh, time of the month, right? And, or maybe after she's had a baby. I can't remember where this was at. But anyways, she is supposed to stay away until she is cleaned. Again, this is a normal person. Numbers 19, 13, anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself, makes the tabernacle of Yahweh unclean. And that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water uh, for impurity was not splashed on them. He shall be unclean. <clears throat> His uncleanness is still on him. So again, this is not just for the priests. Different, depending where you were at within, the, within Israel, you had different sections that you could attend the tabernacle. Okay? And so, but when you came to the tabernacle, you had to be clean. Okay? That's what he's saying. You have to be clean. God is a holy God, and he wants his people to be uh, clean. Now, keep that in mind. So, we'll go now back to Colossians. <clears throat> we'll look at Colossians, and we look at the word here, festival. Okay, what was festival? So, the festivals were just were Jewish celebrations such, such as Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Lights. You'll see this in Leviticus 23. The new moon, uh, during the first day of the month, or new moon, sacrifices were made. You'll see that in Numbers 28, 11 through 14. Now, 
The Sabbath day, we'll slow down a little bit here because the festivals and new moons really aren't debated much, but the Sabbath day, today we are not required as believers to worship or rest on the Sabbath, okay? The Sabbath, we learned from reviewing the Ten Commandments, I'm not sure if you guys remember, was originally a day set aside to remember what God did in six days, okay? Then later on, it was made a sign unto Israel, Okay, not the Gentiles. Again, I want to emphasize that signs are only for the Jews and not the Gentiles. And each time you see this term sign, like I said, it's always for Israel or the Jews. In 1 Corinthians 1.22, the Greeks seeked wisdom and signs were for the Jews. Okay, it's very important when you're looking at especially the gifts of the Spirit, things like that when you're studying um, the Old and New Testament, the sign is a key word that is very important. Now, if we look at Exodus 31, 12, uh, you don't have to go there, but I'll read it. It's up to you. Exodus 31, 12. I'll tell you what, go there because it's real important. Let's go to Exodus 31. You should underline this in your Bible one day, <clears throat> or maybe today is that day. <laughs> okay, Exodus 31, 12. It says, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, but as for you... Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely, again, the sons of Israel, you shall surely keep my Sabbath. For this is a sign, again, here's the word sign, between me and you throughout your generations, okay? That you may know that I am Yahweh who makes you holy. So you can underline that. It is a sign. Therefore you shall keep the Sabbath, verse 14, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there's a Sabbath of complete rest. Holy to Yahweh, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. Then verse 17 says, It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days Yahweh had made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he restored and was refreshed. Remember, the Sabbath is a sign for them so people could see that they were different. Okay? And, we'll, we'll, and we, we too have a Sabbath, but it's not this kind of Sabbath. We'll get to that in a minute. And uh, so you'll see that, okay? So if somebody tells you we're supposed to worship on the Sabbath, that is not true. We, we, um, we no longer follow this covenant. This is old covenant. We're now in the new covenant. Now, <clears throat> let's move on now. Let's go to verse 17. It says, this will be a lot easier, smoother. We're almost done here. We'll probably stop here at verse 17. But... It says, things which are, well, let me go back and reread verse 16. So now, let's slowly think about what we just said. And we see, therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Okay? Now we see in verse 17, things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This is very important. So the dietary laws we just looked at, the festivals, the sacrifices, and Sabbath day worship were only shadows. That means they weren't the real thing. They were just shadows. What does that mean? Okay. A shadow is a representation of somebody, just like a picture is. Okay. 
if uh, my wife, I usually, usually use this example, but if, my, if I go out on a long trip and I'm gone for a month or two and I come back and I get off the plane and my wife is there waiting for me and you guys are there waiting too, why I don't know, but you're just there, okay? Bear with me. <laughs> you're behind my wife and you're watching this emotional scene. All of a sudden she takes off, run towards me, runs towards me and right before she hugs me, she goes down to the ground and begins to hug my shadow. What would you think? This girl's nuts, right? The real thing is right there. Why is she hugging the shadow? Well, that's what these things were. They were the shadow that was pointing to the reality, which is Christ, okay? That's what he's saying here. So all these laws and festivals and Sabbaths, they point to Christ. Now Christ is here, and now he has fulfilled these things, so we don't, no longer need to follow them. And we'll look at that real quick. Okay. <clears throat> Ver, uh, okay, so now, because now we have the real deal, we have the substance, which is Christ. Again, so first, for the dietary laws, Christ has fulfilled them. He is now the bread that comes down from heaven. Remember the, great, the I am's that we talked about with the kids? I am the bread of life. Christ is that bread. We no longer need to worry about food. We can now depend on him and him alone, right? What does he say? A man must not uh, live on bread alone, right? So it's not about the physical, but it's about the spiritual food that we should be worrying about. God will always supply us for the physical. Um, he is also the supreme sacrifice for all sin, past, present, and future, okay? So he's fulfilled all those um, requirements, especially like the Passover, things like that. Um, now the Sabbath, or rest, is now found in Christ. No more shadows in signs. You can see this in Hebrews 4.11, but now our rest is found in Christ. We are no longer bonded to these laws. We are no longer have to follow um, these rituals that he gave the Israelites in the Old Testament. He has taken both Jew and Gentile, brought them together, and now those shadows are fulfilled in Christ. Okay, we are under a new covenant. We see that in Hebrews 8, okay? So again, Christ is the reality, and the shadows, because Christ had not made it yet, were just to sustain us, just to remind us that we needed to stay holy. But now as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit in us, God tabernacles in us, which constantly reminds us the way we are to live. We are constantly convicted by our sin, okay? So, church, we, like the Colossians, need nothing else besides Christ and his forgiving work to help us be closer to him. We do not need to obey any laborious laws to draw us closer to God, okay? So remember, God tabernacles in us through Christ, no extra yoke is needed. No extra weight or labor is needed, okay? All right, so hopefully you find that you can put all that on Christ. If anybody comes to judge you on these things, remember, we are complete in Christ. You don't need any of these things, okay? Jew and Gentile have now come together in a new covenant, and we're here today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us, Lord, that, Lord, you now dwell in us, Lord. And 
God dwells in you. The fullness of God is in you, and you dwell in us, Lord. We just thank you for that, Lord. And so we just help us, Lord, to, to study your word and grow so that as we continue to grow, Lord, we'll see this fullness, and it also it'll be represented, Lord, to the world on the way we live our lives. And, Lord, I know that today sometimes there may be some of us that... Uh, who live a certain way, Lord, but I know that as we grow and become more like you and study your word, we begin to hate sin and we begin to purify the temple, Lord, us, Lord. We begin to eliminate things, even though they may not be, um, in a sense, bad or the, the gray areas, but sometimes we just disconnect from those things because what's more important, Lord, is that people see the way we live like the way you tried to set up the Israel, Lord, the Gentiles were supposed to look over the fence and see that Israel was a holy people and be drawn to that, Lord. I pray today, Lord, that we become those people the way we live, that people in the outside world can look at us and say, I want what they have. And Lord, and there are those who will hate us for this as well. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be strong, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.